And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. <laughs> He's making a lot of punts, Rodney. <laughs> blocked! Oh. Allen has the kick blocked. And the Falcons recover it at the 30-yard line. It'll Taysom be a short Hill. field. Taysom Hill. Just an individual rush. It's some pressure yeah, here. And that, now, the big thing is make sure you do not foul anybody here on the dribble. It's going to be James. Sure. Here it is. See, it's under it's three under seconds three. to go. Throws up the floater. Oh. Oh. Good night, Cleveland. That is for you. What was your mindset when you stepped in the batter's box? Go yard. I mean, <laughs> I'm a pitcher. Why not swing as hard as I can? I got nothing to lose. What did Paul Maneri tell you before you walked up there? Well, I mean, at first, he said, you know, just go up there. Don't swing the bat. Don't do anything. And then it changed the pitch, and I was like, he's getting scared out there. He's like, yeah, did you ever hit an ice school? I go, I, I, I hit bombs. He's like, all right, I'll swing away. <laughs>
their former president of football operations, Bruce Allen, Jay Gruden, and other members of the coaching staff over the past decade, sexually assaulting female employees working for the team. 15 women came forward. Article dropped Friday in the Washington Post. This is a huge story. What are your initial reactions to this, Mike? Well, first, uh, my first immediate reaction was me chuckling to myself at the thought of Bruce Allen a couple years ago when he was still working for the Redskins saying that the Redskins culture was damn good. And you think about all the things that have transpired since then, including them now having to retire their name. We still don't even know what the new name is going to be. And then for this whole scandal to uh, now come out here that also includes Bruce Allen and all the way up to the top with Dan Snyder. uh, It's just another black eye on one of the worst run organizations in professional sports. And quite frankly, Dan Snyder, he really hasn't had a good look as an owner in this league for a long time, but this is really kind of just the cherry on top in terms of incompetence in your organization and, you know, the way they've been running things. And uh, I think the other reaction I have is that I feel like stuff like this doesn't get reported as often as it probably happens in professional sports. And I feel like this kind of activity with the way women are treated in the professional sports workplace is a little more frequent than I'm sure anybody would want it to be, but that more frequent than it'll ever be reported, which is unfortunate. Absolutely. And I'll piggyback off of that just from my own experience. So for those of you that don't know, I work in higher education. I work in residence life. Uh, it's something I really enjoy. And one of the things that it's opened up a window for me uh, personally is with regard to Title IX on college campuses and how we respond to allegations of sexual assault. The numbers are there. One in four women are sexually assaulted, period. And uh, one in five women are sexually assaulted during their times on a college campus. So the numbers are there uh, regarding how frequently this happens. In these cases, based on those numbers, just don't get reported to universities because people are afraid of the backlash. There's always people who, you know, condemn women who are accusers. And frankly, like to me, that that kind of uh, response to allegations like like these, there's just no place for it in society. And, you know, I always say, you know, it's important that we believe women who come forward with these stories because they have nothing to gain, right? They, they literally have nothing to gain when it comes to making these accusations. When you look at things all, all the way up the chain, right? The, the president of the country has countless allegations against him right now. I'm not going to go into politics. That's just, these allegations don't ruin lives like people perceive them to do so, right? So with the Washington football team, Snyder, they're going to face some sort of repercussion some sort of penalty here and I doubt that it's going to include the NFL uh, office forcing Snyder to sell the team so that's my first piece of feedback my second piece of feedback tying into the fact that I think we should believe women these women are 100% telling the truth 15 of them right now are not just conspiring against the uh, organization to take them down because I think what's been going on with the name financially and from a PR standpoint in the last two months has done enough damage to the Washington NFL team. And I don't know if you agree with that, Mike, but 
if they wanted to just go after the organization, this I, I feel like there's already enough ha- happening for that not to be a sole motive. You know what I mean? And the fact of the matter is that there was this information leaked. It was leaked out Wednesday night. It actually was leaked while we were recording the first episode of the season, and we talked about it. And immediately on Thursday after this leaked, the Washington football team hired an entire new legal team to evaluate and to protect themselves. And then on Friday, this drops, right? So just from an optics standpoint, this points toward they are much more guilty than innocent regarding these allegations. So personally, I think that everything that came out in the report is 100% true. There's going to be a lot of people who need to be held accountable for their actions, first and foremost. But I really hope that the NFL conducts a thorough investigation, cooperates with federal authorities if it, you know, go, gets to that point because, you know, it falls on the women to pursue charges, you know, if they choose to do so. It's up to the victim. It's not anybody else's uh, choice to decide. But beyond that, the NFL needs to do its own investigation and the NFL needs to punish the organization beyond like what I anticipate happening, which is probably loss of a first round pick in a $1 million fine or something. Something like that is going to be really, really marginal and it's not going to actually be effective in changing the culture. I, I don't know if you care to chime in here. Yeah. And I think uh, we're both kind of the same page and, if, if we're just going to be honest and realistic in assessing this, I think we both know the NFL is not going to come down too heavily on the Redskins. Part of that is just based on the language of which the rules of the NFL are written, which doesn't allow them to levy too significant of penalties for something like this. But three of the employees that were uh, alleged to have participated in this kind of uh, activities here, two of them were fired. One uh, resigned his position with the team. So, like you said, I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of guilty parties uh, in the Washington football organization, and they they knew that, and as soon as this story was leaked and they knew it was coming, they did everything they could immediately to try and protect themselves and protect the organization. Uh, There's lots of reports of minority owners of the team trying to sell their shares. You know, they want out. They want nothing to do with Dan Snyder. So I think if we're being honest, the conduct in the Washington football organization probably runs a lot deeper of, you know, misconduct and whatever is happening there than what was even reported in the Washington Post. And we'll probably never have all this information come to light. But at the end of the day, the only man who you can truly hold accountable for this is the man in charge. That is Dan Snyder. Personally, I believe he should be forced to sell not only for this whole situation. He's just an incompetent football owner to begin with. There's really no added benefit to the NFL for having Dan Snyder as an owner in their league at this point, there's only negatives. But once again, I think we both agree it's probably not going to happen. This isn't a Donald Sterling situation where, you know, you're going to have players on the team protesting and not showing up or whatever it it be. So Dan Snyder's probably uh, safe. And honestly, at the end of the day, most of this will probably go unpunished and there will be some sort of, you know, like you said, a fine, a loss, a draft pick, whatever it may be from the NFL. But, you know, at least uh, these victims are able to get their story out, share their stories, and hopefully that helps them move forward. Absolutely. And uh, another thing I think that 
this kind of reminded me of was the the Penn State scandal where we talked about Sandusky and Joe Paterno and how within the range of outcomes, we'll, we'll tie it into that because that's just one thing that I do is assessing range of outcomes. The likelihood that Joe Paterno knew nothing about what was happening was slim to none. So Dan Snyder, the likelihood that he knew nothing about what was happening is absolutely slim to none. So when he comes out with this statement on Friday saying that uh, these acts and accusations or allegations have uh, no place in our organization, I'm going to launch an internal uh, investigation and we're going to get to the bottom of all of this internally, I just heard it as a bunch of bullshit because Dan Snyder is not going to find while investigating himself any wrongdoing on his own shoulders like that we know that's not going to happen we know 100 percent, 1000 percent that that's not going to happen dan snyder is not going to conduct an internal investigation and have the report come back and say there was no way that mr snyder knew nothing about what was transpiring under his watch i don't know if you agree with me on that but i think that was my initial reaction to his statement and how he was handling what was going on. I'll just keep it short and sweet. Dan Snyder's full of shit, man. Dan Snyder knew exactly what was going on. He was probably doing it too. Him and Bruce Allen, if you ever hear any stories about this, him and Bruce Allen, the only reason Bruce Allen held that job for as long as he did is because they were buddies. They were like best friends. And so, and Dan Snyder does is very strange with this, where he gets real buddy-buddy with his employees a lot more than most NFL owners do. So if this kind of thing was happening in his organization, there's no doubt in my mind Dan Snyder knew about it. And hell, he might have witnessed it. He might have participated in it. I don't think that's very far outside the range of outcomes on this one. I don't disagree at all. I, I, I don't think we need to go too much further in on this story. I think it was just important to kind of delve in a little bit because things like this in the sports world – a lot of people like to turn a blind eye to. We look at the on-field product. We look at fantasy sports. uh, We love video games and memorabilia. We love everything about sports except for the corruption that takes place in virtually every mega business, right? Everyone in a position of power has the potential to be corrupt. And as a society, I think we like to be a little naive to that because it's more comfortable to to be that way. So even for people like you and you and myself Mike, it's very important that we have these conversations and we try to engage people who care to listen to the show and we we try to, you know, present it in the more humanistic issue that it is. This is 100% a people problem. This is not a political problem, you know what I mean? Too many people think like, "Oh, I don't like talking politics when it comes to sport there is nothing political about women being sexually assaulted you know what i mean so that's that's pretty much why um we we brought this up today and wanted to start out the show with it um sorry if it's not our usual forte but with with stuff this of this magnitude in society and in the world of sports it's important for even people like mike and myself to chime in mike do you have any uh, closing thoughts before we move on 
Yeah, definitely. Like you said, not our, our normal talking points, but we also mentioned it in the first episode of the season, so we couldn't leave y'all, you know, hanging there. It broke mid-recording. I brought it up. We had to talk about it here. So just a, a little bit of different insight from me and Curtis here, and uh, we'll keep it pushing here, though. Absolutely. So from one historically bad owner to one prospective, exciting new owner, we're going to transition because we got some news uh, regarding Alex Rodriguez and his bid to buy the Mets. What can you start me with here, Mike? Yeah, so the, the Alex Rodriguez group looking to purchase the New York Mets. And right now it sounds like if the money is good, uh, that is who they want to sell the team to. The current Mets ownership group wants to sell to A-Rod's group. And Curtis, let me tell you, this is my favorite group of individuals I have ever seen attempting to do anything together in my life, I think. Just just a fascinating list we have here. So obviously we have Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez, his wife, uh, who bring a lot of star power and capital to this group. And then we have uh, some former and current NFL players, Brian Erlacher, DeMarco Murray, Travis Kelsey, and Joe Thomas. And then we have a couple of current NBA players. We got Bradley Beal. And then we have my favorite one of the group, Curtis. We have Mason Plumley, who somehow found his way into this group with a bunch of all-pro, all-stars, Hall of Fame caliber talents. Mason Plumley, you know, not Miles Plumley. Mason Plumley found his way into this group. So Mason Plumley, right? <laughs> favorite name on the list. We we have to know, and I'm assuming beyond the eight names you just listed, there is somebody else, you know, more minority stakeholders in this group that are contributing to the pot. But Mason Plumley can't have more than a one to five percent share of this purchase, correct? Like how much money has this guy actually made? I remember he's gotten a big NBA contract or two. I think he was one of the people who really benefited when the NBA salary cap just shot up around 2015. If you remember one of those uh, NBA off seasons, it was when Nicholas Batum got a $120 million deal and off rip. We're all sitting there like, why is Nick Batum getting a max contract? Listen, I'm not going to lie. I was in support of the Nick Batum max contract at the time. But let me just say, Nick Batum in his prime was one of the best all-around talents in the NBA. And I always got ripped for saying that. But he could do a little bit of everything. You know, he brought a little bit of everything to the table. And he was really good at everything. He wasn't great at anything, but he was really good at everything. So he was, Nick Batum. he was the Stefan Diggs of NBA players, right? Exactly. Okay. So Nicholas Batum never was what higher than an 83 overall in 2K. Show some love to my guy Nick Batum though. He st- he he got all the love he needed, dude. Sign he freaking signed a 120 million dollar contract, got, and then he got hurt, and you know it was downhill. Things happened. You know but Chandler you- Chandler Parsons once a great player got got a big contract, got hurt. Somehow got another big contract. This is a whole topic for another day, though. So we got we're we're getting way off track. Mason Plumley, by the way, uh, he's making about fourteen or excuse me, about twelve million dollars this year. So, yeah, his current contract is three years for forty-one million dollars, and NBA contracts are fully guaranteed. So when we talk about these bad contracts, Nick Batum does not give a shit about what I have to say because dude made one hundred twenty million dollars before taxes. So uh, Mason Plumley. His total NBA earnings, I'm just going to look this up really quickly. Well, do we have a guess on what this guy's made in his NBA career? 
Uh, I would go with probably around fifty million. He's made forty-seven point three million dollars as of the end of twenty twenty. This is the last year of his contract, so that was a really spot-on guess. So, based on his investments, he could have a portfolio that's worth up to two hundred million dollars, maybe, and based on investments, endorsements, uh, bonds, etc., mutual funds. So, Plumley might be a player in this, but I can't imagine he's contributing more than like twenty to twenty-five million in the grand scheme of this group. So I'm assuming he's about a 1% stakeholder <laughs> of this buying team. But I love the Alex Rodriguez fit for the Mets because, A, Alex Rodriguez is really well-loved in the New York area for all that he brought to the Yankees. I know the Mets aren't the Yankees, but there's going to be some carryover in fan interest from the Yankees fans who I think are all committed to success, not an actual team. Yankees fans are more built on the back of 27 rings than they are caring about their actual franchise, right? So people can at me about that take, but that's my perception. So there's going to be a lot of people in New York jumping on the Mets bandwagon if A-Rod is successful in buying this team and brings success to the Mets, uh, who have been good in recent years. A-Rod knows the market, having played in New York for so long. And he's got a star-studded cast full of uh, people who are generally liked. Every single person that you listed of this group of eight is a popular person in the world of sports or pop culture, uh, especially his wife, Jennifer Lopez. So there's going to be a lot of buzz surrounding this. And I think A-Rod, given he would have the money to support it, wouldn't be, a, wouldn't be afraid to spend money to get people into – the Big Apple, but not playing for the Yankees. So I want to hear what you think about that as far as the logistics behind an A-Rod ownership group. Well, first, let's hope he's not as bad at this so far as his pal Derek Jeter has been because the Marlins have been a mess. Uh, but the Marlins were kind of a mess when Derek Jeter took over, so we'll we're, cut him a little bit of slack on We're going to pause on the Marlins because I think next episode we can go really in-depth on yeah, what the Marlins Yeah, I'm not going to go in too hard on Derek Jeter right now. But for A-Rod, uh, coming in with the Mets – Right now, the Mets, honestly, have a pretty good foundation if we're talking roster right now. And the biggest issue for the Mets has been their ownership is a complete disaster. So, really, A-Rod coming in, just putting a, a fresh face at the top of, you know, this team and just kind of reestablishing the brand of the New York Mets, I think A-Rod is a perfect fit for because have you ever seen someone as good at rebuilding a brand as Alex Rodriguez, a guy who – really, based on how his MLB career went, should be thrown with the names of Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens, but has somehow spun his way into being one of the most well-liked former MLB players that we have, even though he used steroids and admitted it. Yeah, and so I, think, guy, I think the second part of what you just said is the key thing, right? Because all of the people that were implicated on the 2003 steroid report who haven't owned up to it at all are generally the people that are catching shit, right? So I don't know if Alex Rodriguez is ever going to find his way into the baseball hall of fame. Maybe success as an owner would shed light on it because an owner is going to make the hall of fame. And I thought that for a long time and I'll tell you why, because he has transitioned so easily into the media. And so now he is buddy, buddy with all these people who are in charge of the votes. And it's the same reason the comparison I always make is the pro football hall of fame. And this isn't quite the same thing, but Randy Moss, 
who was maybe not the most well-liked guy as a player. Not at uh, all. And Terrell, and Terrell Owens, who was not well-liked as a player. And Terrell Owens had to wait his turn for a few years to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Randy Moss, because of how he transitioned so easily in the media, got in on the first ballot. So do you think A-Rod can still be a first ballot Hall of Famer when his name comes up here shortly or no? I don't know if he'll quite be able to squeeze out first ballot, but I feel really comfortable saying A-Rod will make the Hall of Fame. You see, I think the other part of this is the fact that him being an owner gives him a whole new avenue to get into the Hall of Fame. Because if he is an owner and he brings a championship to the New York Mets, uh, acting as owner slash president of baseball operations slash GM slash whatever, right? If he does that, then suddenly it doesn't matter that he used steroids as a player because steroids don't increase your performance as an owner. So unless there's a big scandal with him as an owner, he's going to be in the clear. And for Alex Rodriguez, that's a huge W because he can get voted on as an owner with extra years of eligibility on top of the 15 that he gets as a player. So this is a huge flex and it's low key a finesse job. I shouldn't even say low key. It's high key a finesse job from Alex Rodriguez because (laughs) he has that extended window to get into the hall of fame. But I do really agree with your point on him being buddy, buddy with the baseball writers of America who are voting on this thing. Can we just be real about something real quick though? A-Rod's whole life is just a giant flex. Yeah. Like A-Rod is literally just a walking flex. A-Rod literally had the first mega contract in the history of sports. And I think people forget about that. And then he did it a second time. And now he's married to J-Lo. Yeah. And about to buy a baseball team. And he works as a broadcaster for ESPN. Like this dude hasn't made it. Don't get better than what A-Rod just managed to pull off over the last 30 years. Alex Rodriguez might be in the running for having the best life of anybody in America. And if you had to trade lives with any one person, like A-Rod's got to be high on the list. Michael Jordan's kind of there, right? Like based on what we saw in the MJ doc. um, Is Michael Jordan married to Jennifer Lopez? No, he's not. So that's a point for A-Rod and that's a big point. That's actually like 30 points. I don't know the point system that we're using, but being married to Jennifer Lopez is at least 60% as good as winning six NBA titles. Isn't it correct? So, no so if we're, if we're just looking objectively at people figureheads in the country who you would want to be a rods up there, Michael Jordan, LeBron, you can throw him into there. I, I'm not going to lie. I would kind of like being Obama, but that's just me. Um, I think he's got it. Obama has had the easiest transition out of his presidency that I can ever remember from somebody who's a political head because the, the next guy came along and suddenly everybody just likes Obama or at least Obama wasn't that bad. And he gets to do the shit with the world of sports and he fills out his March madness bracket and radio hosts in the media love him. I, I just think that's easy. It's a flex that you got to be president of the, um, I don't know who else I would put on this list, though. I'm just going to take A-Rod. Like, I don't even need to think of a wrestling I, list. There's maybe, no one to top in this guy. I also think we should include Jay-Z in the discussion. Just that's that. No, that's a valid point. Jay-Z. Because if, if we're including being married to J-Lo as criteria for having it made, then you absolutely have to include being married to Beyonce. And Jay-Z also owned a stake in the Brooklyn Nets at one point. Correct. One of the most successful rappers. This is a good point. This is a good point. So okay. Jay-Z versus A-Rod, we're going to have to have this debate one day on the we're, show. Jay-Z we're going to put up a Twitter poll at the start. We're going to talk uh, – we're going to put a Twitter poll up, and it's going to be who has 
the best life or who has the, who hasn't made the most. And it's going to be Jay-Z, A-Rod and Michael Jordan. We're, we're going to let the people vote. How does that sound? So moving on, do we have, I don't know how we ended up there. This is how the podcast goes, Michael. It's a journey. Every time we step, step foot onto the zoom call. Uh, Is there any closing thoughts that you have on this purchasing group and how much it makes sense for the New York Metropolitans? Yeah, it just needs to happen, to be honest. And the Mets have looked uh, pretty sorry the last couple of days playing the Yankees in their scrimmages. So uh, they, they need some a jolt of life. A-Rod got it done. Get it I agree. That. And I think that A-Rod, uh, because this could be a rough year for the Mets in a shortened season. If they start off slow, it could look really bad, right? So A-Rod going into 2021 as the owner could provide a much-needed spark. Um, the Mets haven't been a putrid organization but the title drought is still lingering. They've gotten close in the last few years and A-Rod might be able to put them over the top. We're going to transition seamlessly. And we're going to talk about how you could build the best possible NFL team. But there's a twist. And that twist is you have to build an NFL team in which you are starting 22 clones of one NFL player. And Bleacher Report, me and Mike have been talking about this since May. We just haven't recorded. But Bleacher Report recently put out a video of a Madden simulation where 22 carbon copies of Patrick Mahomes played 22 carbon copies of Lamar Jackson. And it was, uh, you know, fun content. But Mike and I got to thinking, who would actually be best fit to pull this off? So, Michael. First name off your head. Who, who, who do you think comes to mind as the best player to do 22 clones of? And you know who I'm going to take, so don't take him, please. Yeah, so we've had this discussion a couple times. There's a lot of names we've bounced around. And as of this moment, I still haven't actually decided who I would take. I'm just going to think of it on the fly right now while we're having this conversation. The two names that keep standing out to me are Odell Beckham and Lamar Jackson because I feel like both guys can really excel in all of the skill spots. And I think – and I also think uh, in the back end of my secondary, and I think those are the most important parts if we're doing a 22-man versus 22-man clone you know, conversation. I think I've settled on Odell Beckham. I think I've settled on Odell Beckham because, honestly, I've watched him throw, play on the Giants and throw better passes than, like, half the balls he was catching from Eli Manning, and we know what he can <laughs> do with the ball in his hands. He's as good as anybody in the league in space. So I've also seen Odell kick. Good kicker. Odell, quite frankly, is one of the best athletes in the entire world at this point in terms of just being able to do pick up any sport and just excel in it. So I think I'm going to go with Odell Beckham. I think that's my decision I've made just now. I think those are both fine choices. We've seen what Lamar can do. If Lamar Jackson can catch passes, the answer might be Lamar Jackson because he's obviously going to be better at throwing the football than Odell Beckham. I think Lamar is a bigger guy. So in the trenches, I think Lamar is going to get the better of Odell Beckham. You said skill positions and uh, guys in the secondary are your best bet. So as far as the wide receivers and corners, OBJ is a great choice. I'm not going to front with you. I, however, think that the best answer to this question is Taysom Hill. And here's why. Taysom Hill. You want to talk about somebody who does everything. Taysom Hill ran a 4-4-40 yard dash. All right. He didn't get drafted because when he entered the NFL draft in 2017, Taysom Hill 
I believe was already 25 or 26 years old. And he had a lengthy injury history at BYU. So people didn't want to take a chance on a QB who was mobile, who hadn't shown a lot in college because he was always hurt. And at the time in 2017, even three years ago, the league was a little bit different with how they viewed mobile QBs because we had the success of Vic and Kaepernick and that was all good. But Lamar Jackson last year was incredibly transformative. Let's on Robert Griffin the third, though. Absolutely, like RG guys who did it yeah. back in the day. Come on, absolutely. I, I apologize. He did it really well for a year and a half. RG three, and he deserves a lot of credit for uh, putting up with that dumpster and fire you know of organization. Who that up the freaking Washington football organization. Who <laughs> up that guy too? Yeah, I hate that organization. Probably the worst. There, there, we're going to talk a little preview for, to the next episode. We're going to talk about the worst organizations in all of sports, and you can bet your sweet ass that Washington is going to be on that list. So <laughs> regarding this, Taysom Hill, right? We've seen him catch passes. He plays tight end. He is a big body, okay? And I still believe that football games are won in the trenches. If you have a phenomenal offensive and defensive line, that's going to help you out more than you can know. Taysom Hill is almost as fast as Odell Beckham and Lamar Jackson. Like, he's running a 4-4. Those guys are running sub-4-4. They're running 4-3-5s. Taysom Hill plays tight end in the New Orleans State's offense. And as a QB, he's shown enough that Sean Payton has been overly vocal that Taysom Hill, despite him approaching 30, being an undrafted free agent, and not having much experience in the NFL game as a quarterback could be the Saints' future at QB. And obviously that's contingent on, A, how long Drew Brees plays, B, if Jameis Winston decides to stick around after Drew Brees retires to play in that system, or if he gets a better offer to go elsewhere and he takes it, and C, if Peyton's been bullshitting us all along. But Taysom Hill, I think, could dominate Lamar Jackson or Odell Beckham in the trenches. So at the face value of it, unless you're throwing quick slants from OBJ to OBJ every play, which I don't think you can pull off because NFL athletes, but NFL athletes, and I think Taysom Hill is athletic enough to pick up on it. And I think Taysom Hill could do a little bit of everything. He even plays on special teams. We get whatever kick. Let me just come ahead real quick. Cause here's my problem with Taysom Hill. I feel like when I get with Taysom Hill is yes, he can do a little of everything but I'm not getting a guy who's exceptional at anything. Where if I take Lamar or Odell, I get a guy who's in one area at least is going to excel. So you're kind of going for a a super balanced approach. I'm going for the idea that Lamar Jackson or Odell Beckham dominates at their position already to begin with. So if I just replace all the other position with them too, hopefully they're just at least average and they're going to be dominant at one spot. Taysom Hill is just going to be good at every spot. You know what I mean? But he's not going to be great at anything. But I think that's what you have to shoot for because I think if I, I was, think that's his fun. I <laughs> I think if you build a team on Madden and you have twenty two clones of Taysom Hill who are all kind of crafted and manipulated to be better at their position, so they've been training in one position, that Taysom Hill with the same body type, the same physical attributes, is going to be better 
overall at linebacker. Also, at, I don't. You're not scoring with that Taysom Hill team because Taysom Hill stinks as a quarterback, and I don't care. But you don't know that. Is. I don't think you I know do that. know that because I've watched Taysom Hill throw the ball, and he's not that good at playing. He's only thrown twelve career passes in the NFL, and so I don't think that's nearly a big enough sample size. I watched him play at BYU. There's a reason he didn't get drafted. Okay, quite frankly. Well, and I, I, so, I and I actually I'm changing my answer. I'm going with Lamar Jackson now instead of Odell Beckham because quarterback is actually just the most important spot. And as we were having this conversation, I realized Taysom Hill is going to suck at quarterback anyways, so I'm not worried about that guy. Lamar so, by himself. Lamar dominated the whole league last year and won the MVP. So yeah, give me 21 more of him and I'll I'll roll it out. So if you have five Lamars protecting Lamar, you think that that's going to hold up against Taysom Hills? I don't need it to hold up because Lamar will just have I, see, all I think you're, you're underestimating the fact that Taysom Hill is an all-world athlete. You're underestimating might, the fact Taysom that Hill, Lamar Jackson embarrassed NFL defenses all year. But, but Taysom Hill is an all-world athlete, and I think Find me one Hill, play last year where Lamar Jackson got hit hard. Okay. One play. I'm not saying Taysom Hill's going to hit him one. hard. I'm just saying that Taysom Hill might be able to contain him, and we don't know – what Lamar could do in the trenches, and Taysom Hill's a bigger guy, so you have to. Well, I don't need Lamar to do much in the trenches. I just need him to hold up for a hot second. Lamar's going to be making moves in the backfield, swing it out to Lamar, and Lamar's gone. <laughs> we can agree to disagree. I just think that when it comes to special teams, as far as the gunners, we're going to take our own. You can have a kicker and punter, right? So I'm going to take uh, Justin Tucker and Brett Kern all day uh, to go alongside these 22, 22 Taysom Hills. But <laughs> I just think that on defense, Lamar can't get it done like Taysom Hill can not get it so done. So I'll win every game in a shootout. Taysom Hill is going to score a point. I just disagree with that assessment too because Lamar Jackson can't – 11 Lamar Jacksons just can't tackle. Taysom see, Hill plays special teams. He can tackle and do it well. How do you know Lamar can't tackle? Because he's never had to tackle a damn thing in his life. He's played QB. Yeah. And Taysom taste Hill has never had to make any important throws in his life at an NFL level. They can run quadruple option with all the Taysom Hills. It's fine. That's not going to be effective, and you know That's it. It's fine. How do you know it's not going to be effective? I'm stacking the box. Good luck. <laughs> with eight Lamar Jacksons, not eight linebackers. That's Who fine. cares? Who cares? worried about that. Give me you the Taysom sound, Hills. You make it sound like Lamar's tiny. He's not as big as Taysom Hill. He's, he's a lot more skilled than Taysom Hill. That's true. I won't deny that. It's just football is still a game one in the trenches, and you give me Allegedly. Ten, no, ten, yeah. It's one in the trenches as Patrick Mahomes throws no looks t- behind the back passes on his way to the Super Bowl. Are you telling me that Mark Schlereth is lying to me when yes. he's on Twitter telling me that the offensive line is that important? Also, oh, Lamar's 6'2", 212 pounds. Let's not act like this man's tiny. And, and Taysom is 6'3", 240, is he not? I, I don't have Taysom Hill's measurements. If it's your team, why don't you have this information? Okay, I'm looking at I'm looking at it right now. He is 6'3", 230. So he's I see got him 20 listed pounds. At, I see him listed at 6'2", 221. I'd like to verify your source here. Oh, I just pulled up a draft profile. It's from uh, – Well, according to Pro Football, Pro Football Reference, says he's 6'2", 221. Oh, I pulled up Taysom Hill athlete profile on BYUcougars.com from his college well, days four years ago. So I was going to say that's four years old. Oh, yeah. Well, then they gave him an extra inch, and they gave him an extra 15. Well, Taysom Hill probably wrote the goddamn profile on the BYU website. I mean, the guy was probably the king around there. What do you think? He didn't say, yeah, I'm 6'3", man. (laughs) It's me when I say I'm 6'5", but I'm a 6'3 and a half, right? Exactly. um, We'll we'll leave it up to Twitter. I'm going to take the Taysom Hills. We have two polls now for Twitter. 
Absolutely. We're really excited about it. We want our audience to get more engaged with the show. But let us know. Let us know in the replies to this tweet. And you can add us on Twitter or Instagram. Who would you choose to build a 22-man team? Current NFL players only. And I'm interested to see what we're going to get responses of. Some idiot's going to be like, Tom Brady. I'm just going to... If Kyler Murray wasn't really small, by the way, I would have went with him too. But he's just too tiny. I like Kyler Murray a lot. And, and but he's, he's also a world-class, top-level athlete. Correct. I mean, he was a first-round pick in baseball and football. It's just absurd. He was a top-five pick in both, wasn't he? I think he went seven in baseball. But he was top-ten in both. Disgusting. And one in one of them, so... Yeah, so Kyler Murray is just something else. And the fact that he has a 77 overall rating in Madden is just an absolute abomination, which leads us into our next topic, Michael, which is the Madden ratings drop. As per usual, there's been some some fallout for this. What can you tell me about what has you surprised the most about the Madden ratings that have dropped this year? See, so here's the problem with the way you word that question. You asked me what surprises me the most. Nothing surprises me about these Madden ratings because I play Madden and I know how they make their stupid, horrible ratings that are garbage every single year. And what they basically do is they say, okay, you won an award last year. Congratulations. You get a huge bump. See Stephon Gilmore, Defense Player of the Year, 99 overall. Lamar Jackson, MVP, 94 overall. Two years ago, Mahomes, MVP, 99 overall now. That's just how this Michael Thomas and Christian McCaffrey, 99 overalls after dominating last season. And then they go through everybody else. And I'll t- this is exactly how they do it. Ready, Curtis? They pull up Madden 20. They, they take a picture of the rating, and they put it in Madden 21, and they call it a day. And that's that. <laughs> and it's amazing because, you know, everyone on Twitter is freaking out about these ratings, including some of the players themselves. But as someone who played more Madden 20 than anyone should ever play, because it's a god-awful game. It's terrible. It's terrible. The ratings – are like almost identical for these guys. Like a lot of people gave flack for Saquon Barkley, but I'm pretty sure the last time I played Madden, Saquon Barkley is an 89 right now in Madden 20. Like that's exactly what he is. So that's what they had him to start in Madden 21. Why? Because they don't care what the ratings are, should be. They just take what they had before and throw it in there. So fact check on Saquon. He started as an 89 and people, including NFL players, were so pissed off that Aaron Jones was rated higher than Saquon Barkley that they bumped Saquon up to a 91. So Saquon's a 91, and honestly, rightfully so. I think he's at least a 94 because he's an all-world talent. The guy's a beast, right? Like, how can he, he should be, be the second best, second or third best running back in the game, probably at, at the worst. And I'm not even a big Saquon Barkley guy, but Me like either. this, this shouldn't be that hard. It's Christian McCaffrey, and then it's Christian McCaffrey is one, and then there's a big gap, and then it's. I don't even think there's a big gap in talent. It's just Christian McCaffrey has gotten more volume and opportunity than anybody else in the last two years, and it's not close. So McCaffrey, and then it's Zeke and Saquon as 2A, 2B. Like, take your pick. I don't know if you share that opinion, but that's what it should be. And the Madden ratings people have the smallest amount of power that I've ever seen go to someone's head because these motherfuckers – are just flexing all over the place. There was a couple big problems I had with this. If we just took it, look at the individual ratings. Rob Gronkowski is a 95 overall after not playing a snap of football at all in 2019. Meanwhile, other people who dominated the tight end position in 20 in 2019 
have fallen through the cracks. Mark Andrews was getting less than a 50% target share. And every in every statistical category, just on raw numbers and on PFF's uh, rating site, which incorporates performance on every snap that someone plays, look, Mark Andrews was a top five tight end last year. And he comes in as the ninth best tight end in Madden 21 with an 86 overall. So are you telling me that Rob Gronkowski right now down 35 pounds, hasn't played in a year, is in an entirely new system that he's better right now than Mark Andrews is? Than Darren Waller is? I mean, I'll just do you one better. We don't even got to say Rob Gronkowski because, you know, maybe there's someone listening to this podcast like, man, I remember what Gronk looked like back in the day. You know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe Gronk's the same Gronk. Greg you go Olson. ahead and tell me Mark Andrews is as good as Greg Olson in the year 2020. I dare you to convince somebody of that one because they're both 86 overalls and there ain't no way in hell that anyone believes that. Yeah, Greg Olson being rated better than Mark Andrews or Darren Waller right now is basically all you need to know about the Madden ratings being legacy scores. And for that, I don't really understand how Greg Olson is an 87 because currently he hasn't been healthy in, what, three years at all? let alone had a productive season. I can't remember season. the last time Greg Olson actually was relevant to the game of football. At this Correct. Point. The, so, like, the most relevant Greg Olson is in the year 2020 is I really enjoy listening to him on his bye week every year when he does the Fox broadcast. Yeah, and he just signed a deal to be a, a broadcaster full-time when he retires, right? So that should come in 21 like, or 22. That's his, that's his best trade he's got going right now. He's a great broadcaster. In terms yeah. of being an NFL tight end, he ain't got much left, unfortunately. So him being an 87, he should probably be more like a 78. And that man's out here saying, nah, this guy's better than Darren Waller. He's better than Mark Andrews. He's almost as good as Zach Ertz, who only got a 90 overall, and he's five less than Rob Gronkowski, who, again, hasn't played since 2018. And when we last saw Rob Gronkowski, he really wasn't even that freaking good. So for my dollar, I just don't understand this at all. I looked at – we talked about the awards being a big part of this. The biggest example of that – was at the cornerback position because uh, do do we want to play a game of blind resumes, Michael? I would love to. Okay. So give me a second to set this up, right? Because I'm doing this on the fly. Yeah. While you're doing this, I can tell you that as we're sitting here recording, I've decided to turn my Xbox on and pull up Madden 20 and just pull up these ratings. And I can confirm Saquon Barkley, 89 overall in Madden 20. So Literally, they were just like, yeah, that's what we had him at when we ended last year. That's fine. And okay. for all the people who were stunned about Nick Chubb's rating also in running backs, because he's a 92 overall in Madden 21. Curtis, would you like to take a guess what Nick Chubb's rating is in Madden 20? It's like a 92. It's a 92. It's literally the same. They just <laughs> copy and paste these ratings, I, I promise. They and maybe change one or two ratings. Like Aaron Jones, they bumped up to a 90. He was an 87. Ooh. Like, they just really – they just don't care that much. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Everyone was freaking out about Thomas Hopkins Julio at the top and how they were rated 99, 98, 97. In Madden 20, right now, if you got on and played, they're 99, 98, 97. Like, they, they just – they really just didn't work very hard. I'm just going to be honest. Like, the biggest change they made looking at this wide receivers list is Antonio Brown wasn't in the top 10 on Madden 21. He's still a 93 overall in Madden 20 because they never changed it. But other yeah. than that, the top 10's damn near the same order. Like, I'm just going to be honest. They, they changed almost nothing. So we're going we're gonna to play a little blind resume game. Are you ready for this? I know, I know you're going to get who these players are. 
So it's more so for our listeners at home. We'll give a little pause and, and build the suspense, right? So player A last year had 44 tackles. This is a cornerback. Uh, he had nine assists on tackles. That brought his overall total up to 53. He had 20 passes defended, and he picked off six passes while recovering one fumble, and he had two touchdowns. He had a great year. Player B had 48 tackles, 10 assists, so that brought the overall tackle up to uh, 58. He had more tackles than his counterpart. He had one sack, which was more than his counterpart. He had 17 passes defended, which was phenomenal, and almost as many as his counterpart did. And he had the same amount of interceptions. He had six. He also had two more fumbles forced than his partner did, which resulted in recoveries and turnovers. So in the overall turnover landscape, he had eight turnovers created compared to six. The only area where player A was considerably better than player B was that player B recorded zero touchdowns. And we both agree, right, that touchdown luck is pretty ridiculous. Like, there's not yeah. much there, – there's not correlations there. It's just Especially either – Especially for guys on defense. Yeah, if you make an interception, it's either you're in full stride and nobody's there to tackle you Unless like you Marcus make a break Peters. yeah Unless you make Marcus a, Peters. yeah Marcus Peters and I would also put uh Eddie Jackson into that mix but yes. so player B just didn't make his interceptions while running full sprint on a on a curl route basically because that's how touchdowns happen on interceptions most of the time so player B statistically was the same or better than every in in just about every category than player A now, what can you tell me about who player A is and who player B is, Michael? Well, player A is uh, the top-ranked cornerback in this year's game, uh, 99 overall Stephon Gilmore of the New England Patriots. Former Buffalo Bills, Stephon Gilmore, you are correct. Ding, 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 and player ding, ding. B is current Buffalo Bills all-pro cornerback Tredavious White, who after a lot – now EA caught a lot of flack for his rating. Well, they bumped him up to a 90. Now, Curtis, I'm just going to throw this at you because, once again, I had the Madden 20 ratings open. And I just want you to, to ponder this. So when the season ended uh, this past year, Stephon Gilmore was the top-ranked corner in Madden 20. He had a 98 overall. So he gave him a nice little bump for winning defense player of the year and having a nice season. Tredavious White was the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8th-ranked cornerback in Madden 20 when the, when the year ended at an 88 overall. So they also gave him a bump. They bumped him up too. So I think what people need to realize is EA is incredibly stubborn with their ratings. So unless you are Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes, they're not taking the dude who started the year in 83 and making him a 99 in the next game. So they started the year, Trey White was like, man, 20. He, he started out like an 85, I think. Like he yeah. wasn't that high of an overall. He ended the year in 88. They gave him superstar X Factor, which is what they give the best players in the game. And, you know, new game comes out, they give him another two-point bump to start the year. Yeah, and which by the end of the year, kind of how they operate. Tredavious White is going to be – a 95 minimum by the end of the year if he has another strong season. Correct. But I think what pisses me off the most is they had identical fucking seasons last year. And I'm a Bills fan, right? I'm a Bills homer through and through. But Tredavious White is not 10 overall points worse than Stephon Gilmore in any universe. And for oh. Madden to just put that on a pedestal, Tredavious White was, I think, third in Defensive Player of the Year voting. So what the fuck is this that Stefan Gilmore 
is 10 overall points higher than Tredavious White. Like, this is why people think Madden is garbage right now, because their formula just makes no sense. You explained it pretty much perfectly, the how arbitrary it is, how biased it is, and how stubborn they are, because EA doesn't yeah. have the, a competitor. The, the biggest problem with Madden ratings is that it's not based off your previous year's production. It's based off your previous year's rating. That's what people need to understand. So if you started with a low rating, and by the end of the year, even if you got a bump like Javius White did, you're still not that high, you ain't going much higher. That's just the way it rolls. So, like, if you were, like, you look at the guys in Madden 20 that ended the year very high, they all came in in Madden 21 with very high ratings. And the guys who were pretty underrated and enjoyed great seasons like the Minka Fitzpatrick's and the TJ Watts and the Daniil Hunters and the Shredavious Whites and the Mark Andrews and the Kyler Murray's of the world. They all got bumps. They all went up and overall from what their Madden 20 rating is, but their Madden 20 rating was so low to begin with that it didn't matter. Kyler Murray in Madden 20 right now is a 75. So they gave him a two point bump, but just like Trey White. Yeah. You had a great year. Two point bump. You're a 77 now. Congratulations. You're the 21st best quarterback so, in the NFL. So Kyler Murray needs 10 great seasons to get to a 97 overall, which is bullshit. Or, or one MVP season because then you get pushed to the top and you're on the cover next year. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So for me, yeah, people were upset about the quarterback reigns too. If you look at it, here's I'll, I'll just read you in order. Madden 20's top quarterback reigns. It goes Mahomes, Wilson, Breeze, Jackson, Rodgers, Ryan, or excuse me, Jackson, Brady, Rodgers, Ryan. Watson. That's yeah, Matt Ryan's not better than Deshaun Watson. That's the right exact now. order they come in in Mad 21, I'm pretty yeah. sure. I think the only difference is Lamar yeah. jumped Breeze. Yeah, and so with, with regard to the quarterbacks, obviously legacy scores are huge. I think Aaron Rodgers at a 90 might be a little too high. I think he's more of an 88. I think Deshaun Watson at an 86 and Carson Wentz was an 84. Both of those guys are way too low. They deserve to be at least 90s based on their talent and I don't know what the ratings adjusters look at because it's clearly just not fucking based on talent it's it's just this linear thing that Madden has to have some sort of algorithm everything is arbitrary to begin with and we get that but why are you not rewarding players for being great you know what I mean players have to be all timers to yeah, get recognized. And in the real problem is football is such a year-to-year sport, and it changes so quickly, and Madden doesn't. Madden changes very slowly. So if, you, if your prime in the NFL, which a lot of guys have this, is two, three years, and you yeah. don't turn into a J.J. Watt where you're great for a bunch of years, or an Aaron Donald where you're great for a bunch of years, or a Patrick Mahomes, you, you'll never see that high rating in Madden. Yeah, that's garbage. And I think that the rating systems – the the rating systems are somehow better and worse than they used to be because Madden 12 every not not even maybe that recently Madden 08 to Madden 10 everyone was a 99 right everybody was a 99 and every single player could be developed to a 99 so if you did a franchise mode within three years you had at least 15 15 99s on the roster it's just the way the game works so I'm glad that they fixed the progression algorithm part of the equation I like what they're doing now with the the skill point type thing and the uh, developmental traits I think that's really cool to their credit but the overall shape of how they start with the ratings just makes no fucking sense and everybody's miserable and Madden's not going to get the ratings right 
until they have a direct competitor in the video game market, which may never come because right now they have an exclusive contract with the NFL. It just got extended too, so and don't it, hold your breath. Yeah, um, and so, you know, the other thing is, and I, I still remember playing Madden two years ago when Patrick Mahomes was lighting the league on fire. Guy ended up throwing for 5,000 yards and 50 touchdowns. It took till about week 16 for him to be above like a 95 overall and be like, yay, I can use Patrick Mahomes like he is in real life. It took weeks upon weeks. And I'm like, Pat Mahomes, it would be a Sunday. I'm like, I just watched Pat Mahomes throw five touchdowns. Let me go play Madden with 84 overall Patrick Mahomes. You see, if we, took, if we took Madden and we fixed – this is how we can combine three great games to make a good product, right? We take Madden and we put NCAA 14's engine into it for the gameplay because I love the gameplay in NCAA 14. And shout out both of us, little tidbit. Michael Rose and I each bought copies of NCAA 14 tonight. And if you want to join us in getting a copy of this great game, last produced seven years ago because of the NCAA uh, naming rights uh, kind of investigation that happened. NCAA is corrupt. Let's just call it that. So the NCAA corruption that happened. Uh, If you want to get your hands on a copy of this in which rosters are still updated, so you can update them to the 2020 rosters because online – uh, the community has kind of done that for all 300 teams in the game. Or it's 117. It's not basketball. Excuse me. Uh, if you want a copy, it's going to cost you about 140 bucks because that's what Mike and I both dropped on it tonight. And I think we're both ecstatic with our purchases. Never but, been happier. So to create a perfect game, you're going to take the, the NFL because Mike and I, I think we agree that Madden is traditionally our favorite sports game. Uh, I've owned every copy of the game since Madden 03 with Marshall Falk on the cover. Fun fact about me. And I, it was gonna, I was not going to buy Madden 20 until Mike talked me into it in the, middle of the, in the middle of the month of March because we were in a pandemic. That's the only reason I even bought Madden 20 because I knew it was a garbage game. So you take Madden, you get that engine out of NCAA 14, and you put six years of work into it. So it's actually even better. And then you take the ratings equation from 2K and you drop it into the game and boom, you have a fantastic game because I think 2K ratings traditionally are very good. And I actually fuck heavy with the 2K ratings on players. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's my equation for a perfect football video game. 2K remarkably because the NBA is the complete opposite of the NFL where your, your prime is way longer. You show up at 18, you know, whatever it may be. And they're very fast at updating the great players. Luka Donich, I remember, because same thing. These Patrick Mahomes, Luka Donich, two of my favorite athletes, young up-and-comers in their sports right now, you know, pretty much since the day they were drafted. So I remember when Luka, in his rookie year, was lighting it up, and I could get on 2K, and he was already a 90 overall. And it's like, wow, isn't it amazing that a company would update the ratings to reflect what's happening on my TV in the actual world of sports? Remarkable yeah. stuff. And it wasn't even an overreaction. Luca was that good as a rookie. He's now like a 95 or 96 overall in the game. Which is where he deserves to be. He's one of the five or ten know, best players in the league. Yeah, he literally – I looked at this the other day because I forgot. He was averaging 29, 9, and 9 when the season ended, which is just absolutely ridiculously stupid. Yeah, he's he's putting up LeBron numbers right now for his age. That's we'll call it what it is, right? He's 20, 21 years old and he is absolutely dominating uh what is still a very very difficult western conference. So, Luka Doncic, it's kind of a perfect microcosm of everything that Madden fails to be. 
So I don't know if you agree with that assessment, but if we take that NCAA 14 engine, we take the best parts of Madden as far as the developmental traits and the game modes with Madden Ultimate Team and Franchise, and then we sprinkle in the 2K ratings, I think that would be a really, really phenomenal game. It'd be a fantastic game. And Curry, as you know, you know, we're both gamers, and I, 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 I enjoy my young players. You know, I love my young up-and-coming stars, and it always bothers me when I play Madden and my young up-and-coming stars are just shit in the game. Like, they're just horrible. The, the only player in recent Madden memory of the last, like, three or four years that has actually gotten the ratings bump that he deserves instantaneously I think was Chris Godwin. Because last year he no. was in 88 overall, and now he's in the 90s. Like, that's where he deserves to be after that short burst. Yeah, but even, I mean, if you look at it in season, like he was dominating all throughout the season. He ended the year in 87. He's literally in this game worse than T.Y. Hilton and Julian Edelman. So, like. Yeah, it's unacceptable. Can't do it. it. And it's just so frustrating because if you turn on the NFL and you watch, like, Chris Godwin and Robert Woods and D.J. Moore and Kenny Galladay, like those guys are, those are up and coming argu- stars at the wide receiver position. Arguable and, top ten receivers in the game already. And they suck in this video game. They're all worse. They're all worse than AJ Green and Emmanuel Sanders. And it makes no sense at all. Because I haven't watched AJ Green catch a pass in like eighteen months. So why is he still getting a ninety overall? Give me a break. I'm wearing an AJ Green jersey right now, and I, I have absolutely no problem with that statement because you're right. We don't know what AJ Green is at this point. I think a safe Madden rating for him would be an 86, but they're like, nah, 90, legacy score. It doesn't make any fucking sense. And how is AJ Green only three points better than Greg Olson? Because Why that is Greg Olson even so good. <laughs> we and need you know what the worst part is they dropped them. He ended Madden 20 at an 88. What did Greg Olson do this year to stay at an 88 overall? Makes Absolutely no nothing. Literally three nothing. overalls better than Mark Andrews and Darren Waller. Like who just had like fantastic seasons at the tight end position. It just makes absolutely no sense. It's just mind-boggling stuff. I mean, I'll do even one better. A guy like Mike Gasecki, who had a nice season this year, you know, up and coming, or a guy like TJ Hawkinson are both below 80 overalls and Madden 20 at the final rating update, and Greg Olson's an 88. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, Greg Greg Olson right now could not hold a jock strap of one of those guys when it comes to playing. But that's why all, and that's why doing Madden franchises is so annoying because all the best players are always old as shit. Yep. Except Marlon Humphrey, who's incredible. Um, but we need to move on. So that, oh, that wait. was our... one final note about Madden because I saw this the other day and it Last made word. no sense to me. Uh, so we talked about the superstar and X Factor abilities. Chase Young, uh, apparently, according to reports, is going to start the year as a superstar X Factor in Madden 21 without ever playing a down of football. Which I honestly think is the right call because Chase Young is a transformational talent. But based oh, on the precedent that the game is setting for itself, it makes no sense whatsoever. Like, Nick Bosa, Nick Bosa started the year last year as a superstar, and I thought, oh, all right, well, I mean, I'd like to see him play. And obviously, Nick Bosa was an absolute monster, and he ended the year next factor, and well-deserved. But, like, there's only so many guys who get the nod of being, you know, like, all right, here's the best players we have in the game. And for Chase Young, as a rookie, never played a down of football to just be thrown into that group, I think it's just maybe a touch overzealous. Yeah, it might be a little bit premature for sure. Because I'll just say, like, Ezekiel Elliott and Devontae Adams of the world ended Madden 20 at Superstar. Like, Odell Beckham, Zach Ertz, like, 
Marlon Humphrey, Justin Simmons, you know, Chris Godwin, you know, guys who are fantastic proven commodities. They're, their, they're bona fide superstars. That's the yes. point of X Factor. And they and they don't have X Factor in Chase Young. Like, what's going to happen is Chase Young's going to have X Factor and someone who's really good and played as a pass rusher for, like, three years and already proven their stuff. Like, is like a Daniil Hunter, kind of? Yeah. Well, yeah. he has X Factor, thank God. Oh, okay. But still, it's just ridiculous. Absolutely. Man sucks. We spent way too much time on that horrible video. But, but it was time well spent, in my opinion. We're going to move on, and we're going to talk about fantasy football because me and Mike – I honestly feel that we could start an entirely new podcast only on fantasy football because we love this shit so much. And one thing that we've been doing since the pandemic began is obsessing over fantasy football, which makes little to no sense in the months of March to August. But we did it anyways. We had no other sports to do, and fantasy football is by far the best sport. It wasn't like we could just jump onto – Daily fantasy with baseball or basketball was all thrown out the window. So what Mike and I did was we started a bunch of dynasty leagues because that makes sense. And we've just been throwing money around and we've been having a lot of fun building teams for these different fantasy leagues. So Mike, why don't we talk through a kind of uh, the necessary pieces of building a great dynasty league? Because I think we're in respectively probably two or three leagues that are just hyper competitive and just really fun to be a part of based on the the high amount of league activity and let's talk about how to build an incredible roster to compete with the best of the best the Matthew Berries of the world yeah I mean I think the key is especially if you're doing a dynasty startup you got to nail the first five picks first five rounds that is the foundation of your team. If you screw those up, you're fucked. Your team's going to stink, and you're, you dug yourself a hole, and you're going to have to figure some shit out. So that's, that's critical. you got to nail those rounds. And the second thing is finding a good mix of competing now while also preparing for the future. And I think initially we both started playing Dynasty a couple of years ago. That's something that we did not contact well, and we kind of – we, we couldn't mix it well. And I think now at this point, I think we've come to terms with, you know, how to value draft picks, how to value young players, how to value older players to get the kind of mix that you want on a team where you can compete for championships while also being set up long-term for success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, so the most important thing, one, to build a good league, you need to get people that are as invested as you are. So let's start from the ground up. Let's just talk about creating the league. You need 10, 12, 14 bodies who really give a shit about the sport because it makes it so much more fun when all 12 of you are equally invested. And I think we have a league uh, based in Matavia, New York, where Mike and I have 12 guys who we all love each other, but we all just fucking hate each other. And (laughs) all of us uh, want to compete. And it's just this incredible, like, just year-round grind that we all commit to. And that's what makes it so fun. So, two, on top of that, um, you just need to, when you get to draft day, you need to know your league as far as how it's set up. 
Uh, is it PPR? Is there a premium on tight end positions? Is there is it super flex where you need to go quarterback heavy in the first few rounds? Um, and you have to have a vision. So if you want to win now, that's great. And you want to go, uh, you know, five star players in your first five rounds, people that are already established, usually between the ages of 25 and 28, uh, have a few years left in the league. The, the Julio Jones, the Bob Woods of the world, uh, as you get into those mid rounds and you want to put that core together of players and you want to, as I, as I kind of call it, you want to manage risk early on in these drafts. So the first five rounds, I tend to go as little risk as possible. So you want to do a basic risk assessment. You want to find rankings that you like that are dynasty specific uh, for your league settings, whether it's super flex or otherwise. And then you want to assess risk on each of your first five guys. And then you get to the mid rounds. And I usually start this around round seven or eight. If you're in a 25 to 30 round draft around seven or eight, you want to start hammering the first and second year players with big upside. So that's the Debo Samuels of the world. That's the Keyshawn Vaughn's or the Mecole Hardman's or the TJ Hawkinson's or the Dallas Goddard's guys that haven't broken out yet, but have the potential to be depth pieces for you in the current term and then be superstars later on. Um, and not years ago when I took Pat Mahomes in round eight. Correct. If, if you're, if you're sitting there with a seventh round pick and you're torn between like a Mecole Hardman or a David Johnson, you should take Miko Hardman 10 times out of 10 because Miko Hardman might play the next 10 years with Patrick Mahomes and David Johnson might play the next 10 minutes and then break his wrist again. And we haven't seen that out of David Johnson, despite his current situation. A lot of people are high on him this year. I just don't buy it, especially in dynasty. So for us, like it's just finding that balance and everybody kind of has a different, different threshold. And my next bit of advice one thing that I have a love-hate relationship about our league in Batavia is that people can't grasp this concept because everybody wants to be winning now all the time. But unfortunately, in fantasy sports, it becomes very apparent that there's usually a separation between the top of the league, the middle of the league, and the bottom of the league. So what I tell everybody is that in dynasty leagues, barring the idea – some dynasty leagues do this. I think it's stupid – Unless there is a no tanking policy in your dynasty league where you have to, you know, put your core together and then build on it organically and nobody's allowed to tank, you should either be contending for a championship or you should be blowing up the whole thing for draft picks. Because the cool thing about draft picks is that they have a cyclical value. And it's kind of like a wave. Picture picture a line graph. And it's this cyclical wave that goes up and down with values of draft picks. And what we've seen time and time again in dynasty leagues is that draft picks are at their highest value during the off season between February, all the way up to when you draft in July or August for your rookie draft. And those picks are gold in the off season because people want to retool their teams. They want to unload their older guys who still have value. So if you have draft picks, you can build super teams by trading a guy like Julio Jones, for example, for potentially two or three first round picks 
which we've seen in our leagues multiple times, Julio Jones getting traded for two plus picks. I have been on the receiving and giving end of trading Julio Jones for more than two first round picks multiple times because I love Julio Jones. So you can trade Julio Jones for two first round picks. And then in the off season, when nobody's really in win now mode, they're more in asset management mode. You can trade one first that one of the two first that you got for Julio Jones for a stud player that (laughs) allows you to maximize your assets. So when it comes to switching up from a mediocre team to building a super team, all it usually takes is one year if you do it right to tank and then retool and build an elite dynasty team. And I want to hear your thoughts on tanking, Michael. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an effective strategy if you uh, don't believe you have the core to win a championship. And quite frankly, it isn't that difficult to identify when you have it and when you don't if you're just taking an honest assessment of your roster. And, you know, there's plenty of resources that you can go to and get a good mix of opinions and be on a player and be like, all right, this is what I got. And am I good enough to compete for a championship? And if the answer is no, then quite frankly, tanking is probably the most realistic route you should be heading in terms of getting your team back on track for you to look at it and say, is this team good enough to compete and have the answer be yes. Um, another thing I want to talk about though, Curtis quickly is upside versus risk. Cause I feel like those two are placed together a lot when in some cases may, maybe don't have to be. So let me, let me just kind of break this down for you. A guy like Will Fuller, right? We always talk about, he's very boomer boss, huge upside, but he comes with huge risk. And I feel like, so, so people will attack Will Fuller for the upside. For me personally, something I like to do in my fantasy leagues and my dynasty leagues is I like to attack upside that maybe doesn't have to necessarily have as much risk. And for example, a guy like Calvin Ridley, who I've been all over this offseason, I think the upside of Calvin Ridley this year is huge. Could be as high as a top 10, maybe even top five wide receiver if it all breaks right. But the risk of Calvin Ridley is also not that large. You're probably getting a wide receiver too, even in, if it all goes really poorly for Calvin Ridley this year. And so those are the types of players you want to go after. You don't want to go after guys who have high upside and have huge amounts of risk if you don't have to. Instead, go after guys who have that high upside and don't come with maybe as much risk. Yeah, absolutely. And th- that's something a lot of people don't always you know, put through their head and equate successfully. Uh, I'll name drop our buddy Alec. You know, we both like Alec a lot. He's a fun guy to be around. But he's a very glass half full type person. So when he talks about the players on his team, he just shamelessly plugs them and values them at their ceilings at all times. You talk to Alec, he thinks Will Fuller is a top 15 receiver in fantasy. Will Fuller has never been a top 15 receiver in fantasy because he can't stay on the field. So when Will Fuller plays, his points per game average might be a a really strong wide receiver too. But how many games are you actually going to get out of him? Eight, if you're lucky, 10? You know what I mean? Will Fuller's best finish ever is wide receiver 53. Yeah. So So let's just call it what it is. And He's a wide receiver four with huge upside if he can manage to stay healthy. And by the way, while we're talking about Will Fuller, in case anyone didn't, you know, just for some a fantasy tidbit for you, we're talking about fantasy. Deshaun Watson this year, you want to talk about losing DeAndre Hopkins? I'm just going to give you a little insight. Deshaun Watson, when Will Fuller plays the last three years, 
his points per game average puts him at quarterback two. When Will Fuller doesn't play, Deshaun Watson's point per game average last three years, about quarterback 10. So you're talking about DeAndre Hopkins. The real X factor in this thing is Will Fuller. If Will Fuller plays 16, Deshaun Watson's going to be just fine. Absolutely. And I think that the Texans receiving core doesn't have a top five receiver anymore now that Hopkins is off the team. But let's not call Will Fuller, Brandon Cooks, Kenny Stills, and Randall Cobb scrubs. That is four very talented wide receivers. And Deshaun Watson is basically a consensus top five quarterback at this time in the NFL. So let's call it as we see it. Deshaun Watson could still be a really valuable asset for 2020 and beyond. Uh, Real quick, I just want to give an example of a tank team. And this is what I've done recently in our Batavia League. In some backstory, we talk about ranges of outcomes and risk assessment. Uh, Week 10 last year, I was playing in this league that we have. And I had probably one of the top four or five teams in the league, you would say, Mike. Um, I don't know where you'd rank yeah, me. Yeah, but... I, I, think, I think you probably at the time had the third best team in the league. Okay, so third best team in the league. Mike's team was better than mine. Uh, this guy, Alex, that we play with, his team was better than mine. He's got a very good team. and We're not going to go into the details on how he acquired said team, uh, but it involves one, one or two very bad trades and me being so a part we're not of one of those. Game. And uh, it involves a member of the league being kicked out as – in part because of Keep one moving. of the trades he made with Alex. But uh, I've put together this team where at QB I have Cam Newton and Jimmy G. It's nothing impressive, but it's guys, uh, if you're not in a super flex league, quarterbacks really don't have a lot of value. So we play six point per quarterback passing touchdown, but we only start one QB. So I grabbed two QBs who I thought could be productive moving forward. Um, Jimmy G's upside is probably higher than Cam's because he's a little bit younger, and we don't know what Cam's going to be in – the New England ups. You know what? I shouldn't even say that. Cam's upside is higher than Jimmy G's. Jimmy G's longevity is probably longer than Cam's. I was going to cut you off. On that that one. I'm like, what are you talking game. about? So, long term value, they might even be about the same. I have two decent quarterbacks that I like. My quote unquote studs, my best player on my players on my roster are Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins, C.D. Lamb, and Nicole Hardman. And then the rest of my roster is literally young guys who could be breakout candidates. It's Jameis Winston because he's got upside. I forgot I even had him. Uh, And it's players like Lamar Miller, who I'm hoping catch on somewhere so I can trade him. That's it. That's the whole thing. So I have 25 guys. And honestly, this year it's going to be a dumpster fire. I'm uh, one of two teams in the league that is projected for less than a hundred points while everybody else is projected for 125 to 140. And I love my team. Because over the course of the next two seasons, I have 32 draft picks and I have 11 first-round picks. For the record, you said 125 to 140. I'm projected for 150. I'm just saying. Okay, Mike's team's really good. We're going we're gonna to put it out there. His team's doing great. He just got Patty Mahomes. He's fired up. But I think that uh, in one year's time, people are going to be looking at my roster, which is now openly mocked in our group chat Everybody roasts me, says, see in 2025, 2021, I'm going to be a top four team in this league with a really young core and a lot of studs. And people are kind of sleeping on that because this time next year, we could talk about Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins, CeeDee Lamb, and even Miko Hardman potentially being top 12 to 15 players at their position in terms of dynasty value. And people just don't give a crap about the future and you want to counteract that if you're tanking with 
uh, getting guys with just immense upside while also carrying little to no risk. And I think that Taylor Dobbins and Lamb, three guys who haven't had injuries in college, uh, Hardman hasn't had any injuries since he came into the league last year, and he plays with Patrick Mahomes. So that's kind of what we've assembled here. And that's kind of the framework where if you can get a dozen first-round picks in a 12-team league, that's half of the first-round draft capital over the next two years. And in the offseason, that gives you big-time leverage because anybody looking to trade back into the first round kind of has to go through you. And that's a huge, huge benefit. Yeah, and I think one just kind of final note as we wrap up uh, this segment and this episode on this is something to remember with fantasy. And really this goes for all fantasy, but especially in Dynasty. If you're not at the very top and you don't feel like you're one of the teams that's going to win the championship, you need to take note of what everyone else is doing and try and do the opposite. Zig when everyone else is going to zag. So, for example, in the first year of our Dynasty League, I kind of knew everybody was going to be, you know, all in. So I kind of went about my business just accumulating draft picks where I could. Never did a full teardown, but just got picks where I could. And I was able to, you know, very quickly turn around and have a great team and continue to build on that over the course of last year into this year. So, you know, that's that's one thing that you just got to take note of in fantasy is try and take advantage of, you know, those soft spots and those deficiencies and what everybody else is doing where you can get, you know, value below what the actual market should be. Yeah, that value is everything. So on my my MO when making trades in a dynasty setting is another recommendation that I'll have for people is make sure you get a good trade calculator that you're comfortable with. Me and Mike both use different ones. We each think that each other's trade calculator sucks, but the results speak for themselves because me and Mike throughout all of our dynasty leagues have very, very good teams. So (laughs) we rag on each other and he's like, oh, your calculator doesn't value studs enough. And I say, oh, well, your calculator doesn't value young guys enough. And we go back and forth on picks and other nuances of what each other is doing. And honestly, when we're, you know, off, (laughs) off the mic, we're just shitting on each other. It's not as cordial as I made it sound. So (laughs) regarding uh, my philosophy is one, any trade, unless it's, crunch time right part of the reason why I tanked when I did I had a top three team I didn't think I could win a championship with it because Mike's team and Alex's teams were so much better than mine so at the trade deadline around week 11 end of our season teams are really going for a title and we had teams that were fringe playoff teams with a lot of picks who were going to make a push to get better and in that title conversation I thought objectively that I couldn't win a title but I thought I also could get a bye week even with a bad team because I had positioned myself with a good record to that point on the season. So I was about seven and three, had high points for, I thought I had tiebreakers in my favor. So I decided to launch a tank, see how far I could get. And I finished the season eight and five and I got a bye week uh, in the first round, which really helped me out because even with the bad team I put together, I finished in second place and I cashed. Uh, But the reason I actually launched the tank is because my co-host here, offered to give me a first-round pick for Julian Edelman. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to maximize my assets better than getting a first-round pick for Julian Edelman at age 33. So I took that deal, no questions asked, and I said, here's your top 10 receiver, Mike. Go chase a title. And I ended up finishing higher than Mike did, just based on our postseason matchups, not because I had a better team. 
So that's Which something I'm that- still upset about because my team just all came crumbling down in the semifinals. Because Delvin Cook and Derrick Henry both got hurt in that matchup. And the team I was facing had Christian McCaffrey and Ezekiel Elliott, who combined for, I think, six touchdowns that week. So it was just it was just a rough go. Straight up, not a good time. And two years ago, I had the same experience in this league because I had uh, Aaron Jones and Keenan Allen both get hurt in a semifinal matchup. But that's the game. It's all about risk assessment, and sometimes it's out of your control. But one thing, I people thought I was the stupidest person on earth for tanking when I did. But now I have a young core that I really like of guys on my roster. I have a ton of picks. I have, you know, $150 that I won that I cashed. It's probably gone now. But uh, And it's just that range of outcomes. If you can get a deal and your assessment is that the value you're getting back is way more than you're giving up, at any given time, you should take it unless it dramatically alters your vision for your team. And Mike said, here's a one and a four for Julian Edelman. He also said, here's a one and a three for Darren Waller. And at the time, I thought, based on the ages of those players and the overall ranges of outcomes for their careers and the risk assessment piece of who they were, because Darren Waller has had issues with suspensions and staying healthy, I said, screw it. We're going to take these and we're going to launch a tank. And I ended up trading away all of my studs, getting a gross amount of picks, and retooling organically for the record i had five first round picks this year i have eight first round picks next year and i have three first round picks in 2022 so over a a three-year span that's 16 first round picks that are going to come through my team so truth be told i just think that uh you know it's effective to take this approach and to maximize your assets at any given time and no regrets, uh, Darren Waller and Julian Edelman don't play for me anymore, but no regrets on either one of those moves because I was real desperate at the time. We were getting real lackluster production at those spots. So, And and by the end of it all, I was starting Brashad Perryman in the third-place matchup. So it all it just all fell apart anyways. It didn't matter. But Brashad Perryman, to his credit, was a very valuable asset during the fantasy playoffs in 2019. Brashad Perryman was lit. I'm a Brashad Perryman truther. Perryman till I die, that speed, you can't teach that. He's Darius Hayward Bay with one good season under his belt. No, he's got but, much better hands than Hayward Bay. He just can't stay healthy. My guy, Brashad Perryman, would have lit it up back in the day with Joe Flacco if he could just stay healthy. You're going to die on that hill? Yes. I'm fine with it. But that's going to do us. Uh, that's going to do it for episode two of the second season of Guys Like Sports. As always, uh, send us a tweet, comment on our Instagram stuff. Uh, if you don't already follow us on Twitter, we're at guys like sports underscore. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at guys like sports. And we're going to be coming at you next week with another packed episode of guys like sports. And, and Mike, it honestly just feels so good to be back in the rhythm of doing this because I honestly just have so much fun when we go through these episodes and we really just shoot the shit and people are enjoying it. So thank and you. Let to me tell you, Curtis, when we start next week, a major North American sport will be in action. And that's going to be... They will be playing baseball. That's going to be our 10th episode ever, and that is going to be the first time that we have a major sport to reflect on in a recording. So I was about to say, the, the most major sporting event we've had really is the NFL draft during our time recording. Put some so. respect on NASCAR's name, okay? Yeah, and no, they've done a lot. not going to do that. The NFL yeah, draft the NFL is, draft is bigger than NASCAR. Than NASCAR. Uh, other than the Daytona 500, you're correct. 
So nah, NFL draft over Daytona 500. Don't at me. Uh, that's a personal take, not a national one. Look at the ratings. But we're going to finish up on that note. And any parting words before Mike uh, just gets on me about NASCAR being a thing? I just want people to know that I scrolled through Twitter today and they're building a barber shop straight out of 2K in the NBA bubble. And so that is now my favorite thing happening in the world is the 2K neighborhood coming to you live from Disney World. Yeah, they got the rec center we've already seen with the courts. It looks fantastic. It used to be a ballroom that's now repurposed for basketball. They got the barber shop. I'm really excited for the outdoor courts to get put in speculatively because we really just need this to take on a new life. Maybe we'll get a pro-am center down there too. And all the employees who want to ball with the pros can just have courts to play inside the bubble. But we'll see how that goes. Uh, (laughs) As always, uh, I'm going to preach, uh, wear your damn mask. Uh, we want sports to continue uh, through the fall. And I think that does it for us. You good, Mike? I'm good. Big trust. Big trust. We'll see you next week. We're out. Yeah.